0: Welcome to the He Shoots, He Draws podcast, the show about photography and design, with your hosts, Glynn Dewis and Dave Clayton. Hello, welcome to another edition of He Shoots, He Draws, and once again, we've got a very special guest who's a good friend, someone who I haven't seen for quite some time, and I do miss him, but I get to listen to his voice each week when he puts out his podcast, The Perceptive Photographer. Ladies and gentlemen... It's a young man based in Seattle by the name of Daniel Gregory. So Dan, for the listeners who don't know you, who are you?
1: Uh, so, well, thanks for the introduction. Thanks for letting me uh, onto the podcast. You guys have one of my actual favorite podcasts to listen to. And I love the balance that you and uh, Glenn provide. So I think it's, it's really you. exciting to be here. Also exciting to actually have a conversation with somebody across the pond. It's always exciting to actually get the global community involved. Yeah. Um, so I'm a I'm a fine art photographer and a photo educator and I guess a podcaster uh, based on Whidbey Island which is just north of Seattle. So I actually live on an island up in the uh, Puget Sound area in a little uh, Nice. Nice little piece of property we 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 have and I have my studio out there. So I like I said I'm a fine art photographer. My kind of specialty is alt processing through digital. So I take digital photographs, you could be on your iPhone, your DSLR, whatever it is. We run that through a process, and then we put that into the historical processes of photography, like platinum, cyanotype, calotype. So the stuff photographers did 150, 180 years ago. That's part of my fine art piece. And the other side is digital printing. So I'm a a pretty good digital printer, um, and I enjoy teaching digital printing. So that's another aspect of my piece there. And then I'm a photo educator. I'm on the core faculty of the Photographic Center Northwest, which is a photo school and community up here in Seattle. And I teach anywhere from... Film black and white through advanced Photoshop, advanced fine art digital printing, Lightroom, pretty much anything that they they would need, I I teach there. And then, as you mentioned, I'm the host of a Perceptive Photographer podcast, which I went and looked at. I'm on my 268th episode. I release that every Monday. Yeah, I
0: know. I checked earlier to see how many you've done, and I was like, wow. It's
1: one of the weird priorities in my life that I have never missed a Monday uh, for 268 straight Mondays, so... It releases wow. every Monday now. It's not always at the same time because sometimes I'm like sitting there working and I'm like, oh my god, it's Monday! I gotta, gotta do a podcast. But and uh, and even the week my little brother unexpectedly passed away a couple of years ago, and my dad called, and the podcast was important enough to me that we were flying out the next day, but I had to record two weeks of podcast because I uh-huh. I was behind. I didn't have anything in the can, and so I had to record a podcast, and I was like. That was probably the longest recording ever because, like, I was so frazzled and so in a different headspace. But it was important enough for me to get that out. And it was a connection to my brother because he, he, while he wasn't a photographer, he did like to listen to my podcast. He kind of felt that kind of kept him in tune yeah, with where yeah. I was and what was going on with that. So,
0: well, our first episode was the week my dad passed away. So while, you, like, you have you, you can look back and think it's like sad thoughts, but whenever people say. Oh, you know, when did you start the podcast? I know exactly when, and then it makes me think of my dad. But I think of nice things of my dad, and it's just one of those extra, extra memories that's there that I can associate to it. So that that was quite weird doing it, and you know, and he never got to hear me do it. And dad was a you know, he's an entertainer, he was a showman, he would have loved it. But by, how by do you... the way, we,
1: I just on a side note, I always we think about you and your family and your dad every year at christmas time because we, we watch love, we love, <laughs> love actually and every time it comes up Lori even knows now she's like there's dave's dad so uh we uh <laughs> so, you're, you're a big part of our holidays here <laughs> oh that's
0: cool we love it because we get so many messages when you know back in the day when it was just the regular channels and it was on program television we'd get a lot of messages all in one go but now because of the way television's done it can be on every night of the week and occasionally we'll sit there and it will get ding ding yeah just saw your dad just saw your dad and it's lovely because we've got that that one thing that's always there but i appreciate when people remember a message it's really cool I, uh, so I, no i showed my wife that movie for the first time this last year in
2: uh, christmas time 2019 and she uh we get we get right to the end and i played the whole movie didn't say a word and then i rewound it and i'm like and there's dave's dad <laughs> she was like <laughs> oh you're kidding I'm like nope there's there's claim to fame there's Dave's
0: dad and you know then we of course had to send Dave the text message which just saw your dad on TV yeah um, yeah I and mean, then I can claim I'm the son of a Hollywood movie star but that's <laughs> by the by <laughs> this is about you Dan but no thank you yeah. for that <laughs> well let's let's we, we don't need to do this chronologically let while we're on the subject of the podcast it's the last thing you mentioned what what made you start the start that because we were talking earlier i think there are now 1 million podcasts and obviously when you started 268 mondays ago it was a lot different back then so what was your reason for thinking do you know what i'm going to do a podcast
1: it was it was actually twofold one of which is i have a about i have two learning disabilities i have dyslexia which a lot of people kind of know what that is and then i have something called dysgraphia And dysgraphia is basically your hand processes information, your head processes information faster than your hand is kind of how it manifests itself and what happens is I drop out phrases and words and my English looks pretty garbled in the, the, which happens to a lot of people. Uh, the disability is I can't see it in my own writing so when I go back to read my brain fixes whatever was wrong so it looks correct to me even though it's not and so Writing a lot has always been kind of a little bit of a struggle for me. And even though I have a master's degree and had to write papers and all that, it's just, it's a slow kind of process for me. And my wife's an editor and she helps me out. And I have all the tools under the sun to do that. But I wanted to find a way to kind of get some information out there and not have to be bound to write this long essay every week because it was just a lot more work for me than I originally anticipated. So somebody... One of my friends said, "Oh, you should you know maybe do a podcast because then you could just sit and record, and not have to worry about it." So, I thought, "Well, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and try that out." And so I started listening across the spectrum of podcast, and realized at that point I was like, "Oh my god, there's already a topic. Everybody's talking about everything. There's going on." And so what I decided to do was rather than worry about finding a podcast to fill a niche. I decided to do my podcast as sort of my own creative process, creative journal, things I respond to, things I react to. And in that way, it was really more for my own edification, just as I'm dealing with problems, could I verbalize them and articulate them and get language around them so that I could move on to something else?
0: Like audio journaling.
1: Yeah, pretty much. And, yeah. and I also was really frustrated with podcasting <laughs> because I found that People would talk for, oh my God, forever and just go in circles and go in circles or were combative and argumentative. I mean, there's certain podcast, like photographer podcasters, I, based on their podcast, I will not even go to their website. I just find them combative, argumentative. <laughs> uh, and I just was like, I don't want to put that kind of energy in the world. And then the, yeah. the other piece was I started to really listen to what my friends struggled with, my photographer friends struggled with. And. So many of the podcasts at the time I started were about gear and technique and and things like that. And I realized what actually people were struggling with was, how do you get up every day and make photographs? How do you create every day? How do you deal with your own anxieties and your own issues that come up in your head? And so I decided, well, that's what I struggle with. So I'm just going to talk about that. And I set myself at the time, it was 12 minutes. I couldn't go longer than 12 minutes unless I was doing an interview. And now it's kind of between 12 and 15 um, but it was really, that's that's how it got started, was I, I needed an outlet. And the thing I've learned over the course of the years of doing this is I do kind of have my own little niche in that space. There is people who respond to the podcast, there's people who don't. There's people who are like, oh, I really want to hear about gear or technique. And people email me and be like, oh, what are you going to talk about selecting, you know, fine art paper, matte paper for printing? I'm like, you can come to my workshop for that. But my podcast is not that. It's something different. Mm. And then the other piece that I do weave into there is language. Part of my photo education piece is language is important to photography. It's it's a visual language, and it's we have a gap in our way we teach photography in terms of verbal language. So people always want to critique, but they don't have any language to build critique. They have no way of understanding what to talk about in a meaningful way about photography. And so I also took the opportunity for my podcast to could I introduce some of that language and how do we identify how we talk about things and why we talk about photographs in a significant way that that matters and so that's kind of how the the podcast originated and kind of where the topics are so
0: i was going to say now you've been doing it for a long time because i know you know we're on i don't know i think you'll be episode 113 i i know how much i've learned from when we first started it our reason for doing it was so me and Glyn could kind of have an extra excuse to chat once a week that we weren't doing. And because I come from that photography background over the past 10 years, and I know so many photographers, I quite enjoyed hearing photographers' stories and backgrounds and hearing their creative process. So I've learned a lot about photography, even though I suck at photography. I've learned a lot about the business and the people. Now when I do it, I'm I know that I'm looking for guests for a very specific reason. Like I want to know about the business. I want to know about their background or I want to know about the successes or failures they've had. So with you being primarily solo, do you just find that now now it's part of your Monday routine? Do you have you learnt a lot from listening to your own thoughts? Because I know when I listen to your podcast I I actually do it for the like kind of life advice more than I do for the photography advice. I like how you tie something into life from life into your creative process. So do you think you think differently because you've now done the podcast and been able to verbalize that all those times?
1: Uh, absolutely. And I think that's, that's one of the benefits of somebody who does routine over and over again. You just, you get to be a different person from that routine and, and, I struggled. It was and I still have a mental block a little bit about what it means to be a working photographer. And so cuz then I had this idea, a perverted idea that photography required me to go out and make photographs all the time. So if I wasn't shooting, I wasn't a photographer. If I wasn't editing, I wasn't a photographer. And then I I had some early mentors which probably shouldn't have been mentors who then reinforced that. If you're not behind the camera, you're not actually working the craft, you're not, and I realized, you know, I've got hundreds of photo books and I've got hundreds of ways I experienced the visual medium. And what I realized was what I'm really interested in was not a photographer, but I was interested in a a life in photography. And so that, that that kind of broader, broader element. And I didn't process that until I really got the podcast going. And I realized what really mattered to me was a creative life. And a, and a creative experience and it just happened to be at this time in my life photography is the creative medium that I'm using I mean I could be a painter 10 years from now or maybe I get a paper mache in 10 years or whatever but photography right now is really the the essence of that experience and so that was the the thing I learned was how to accept where I'm at as a, as yeah. a photographer and because I had resisted that and pushed against that and I I mean I wouldn't say I was clinically depressed, but I, I had massive creative blocks against that because I felt like, oh, if I sit down and I flip through my Elliot Erwitt retrospective or Michael Kenna's book, or, you know, I pick up a training material and I'm learning Photoshop from somebody. and I'm like, well, you know, I'm not behind the camera. And I'm, but I was just getting all of this knowledge about photography and how I appreciated it and experienced it. And so the podcast really allowed me to accept where I was and who I was as a, as a creative. And, and that is the thing I'll be forever thankful for. And that's one of the reasons it drives me still to, to create it is once I accepted that it wasn't a camera that made me the photographer, it was the way I see that made me the photographer. And it's what makes each photographer unique was not the camera, it's their scene. And yeah, and I at the about the same time I was doing the podcast, I had a amazing experience. Um, I had met uh, Bill Allard, William Albert Allard. I'm National Geographic photographer. We had had dinner together with some friends in Montana. And we all got along great. We loved Bill, Bill liked us. So we invited we all agreed to go to New Orleans and thought, "Hey, it'd be fun to bring Bill down to New Orleans." So we did. And what Bill as we hung out in the Spotted Cat and the other nightclubs down there and in the French Quarter, we were talking and and you know having a drink and and what I took a photograph and Bill said to me, wow, that was well seen. I wish I had seen that. And I was like, oh my God, that's that's the magic of photography. It was Bill and I literally sitting side by side. And it wasn't that we made different photographs. It's he literally didn't see the thing I saw. Yes, and, totally get that. And so I was like, oh my God, that's that's really the gift photography has for people is it gives me a chance to see Alan's world and Dave's world and Glenn's world and whoever's world we're we're in, I get to see that. And so for me, I started to realize that's the uniqueness, that's the creative aspect, that's the element of that. And so that allowed me to let go of I need to create photographs to I can appreciate, consume, understand, and create photographs and feel like I'm I'm meaningfully stepping forward. So the shift came from like I mean, I love like Alan's some of Alan's concert photography. I just
0: mesmerized by I know and, he's just he's just a machine but <laughs> he just points and yeah and I
1: look yeah. at it And I used to look at it when I was younger in my career and I would look at it and I think oh god I wish I understood how to do that or the lighting or how did he what was the camera le- and it was all this stuff to and now I realize like no 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 it's the presence of mind to get to sit in Alan's world to have that experience and so it's truly now an appreciation of photography rather than how do I mimic and recreate and that was in that podcasting world those were some of the things i was struggling with early on and i couldn't figure out how to get through them
0: and just see i watched i was lucky enough in uh just this past november to spend some time with alan and i got to go to a concert with him um and it was uh country and western which was an interesting night as it was (laughs) but because it's just not a music genre over here that we kind of it takes so seeing that the kind of audience but obviously i got to see alan in action it's his gig it's his it's his local it's his day job and it was apart from like sitting there like when i watch my brother play music and and i just want to keep going that's my brother that's my brother i'm looking at alan watching him thinking that's my mate and he's up there and he just knows he knows what's coming he's done this now that he sees he can see what's coming and he knows how to react to it before it's happened and and i was watching where he was pointing and where he was looking and i'm thinking okay yeah he's pointed but there's a big light up there and oh, there's all these people and he comes back and shows me the photographs and it's just how, how did you just that's not what i was looking at and i love that as you do it as you you know you fit into your world of photography it's what you see and it's what you um uh, Oh, it's what you yeah, the apprehensiveness. I'm trying to think what the, the word is. Right well, when you when you're thinking of what's coming next. Yeah, that anticipation. That, that training yeah, an- the, yeah. the anticipation. That's it. It's the anticipation. And I, I remember when HDR came out. And again, you know, I love photography. I I th- oh. I think I take good photo. Fo- I think I've got a good eye because I'm a designer. So there's things that I see differently. I struggle with a camera. My problem is the mechanics of a camera. When HDR came out, I went to my first Photoshop world in 2010 and I went on a photo walk just to make friends and it was um, uh, a a picture company's HDR walk. I had a Sony something or other. Everyone else had a Nikon or a Canon and I'm walking around with this cheap-ass Sony camera that I just bought. Um, It was Brian Matthias and... He was trying to explain to me. He didn't even know how the camera worked. He didn't know how we could bracket to get any HDR. And although HDR kicked the crap out of a lot of photography, the thing it made me suddenly do was look for shadows and highlights in a scene. So because I know Alan and I did his concert photography, I always say now to people, sticks up. You know, microphone away the shadow. I know the things that are there. And I love that my brain now sees... The t- times I've been out and I've just thought, if I had a camera on me right now, and I know I've got my phone, but that doesn't always get the best, sharpest in me. I mean, what I see, I want to capture as I've seen it. I don't want the grainy, low-light, crap version on my phone. But I amaze myself sometimes how I see a person, or a, I hate the word because it's poncy, but the juxtaposition of two things, or just a... a, a like the planets lining up and I look at it and go, oh man, if I could take that photograph, people would think I'm a really good photographer. <laughs> and it's taken 10 years for, you know, for that to evolve. But I love that my brain thinks like a photographer, but my arms are a graphic designer. Yeah,
1: it's, it's an interesting piece that I, one of my favorite classes and subjects that I teach. Well, in, in the printing world, I see this all the time. But when I teach people, I teach a class called contemporary color. And we, we, in that class, we look at 100, 150 contemporary and historical painters and photographers. So we're really trying to get people up to speed on what's currently going on in our understanding of photography in, in the modern era, not from a technique, but how is color responded to. The other half of that class is learning to see color. And the class starts off and I'm like, look, you all are bad at this. You, you actually don't see color. You think you do, but you don't. And by the end of the class, class period, people are like, I can't believe like across a white wall, when you actually learn to see color, all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, there's magentas and blues and yellows and gold. And all of a sudden what's a white wall is this rainbow of color. Cause all of a sudden you can see it, but you have to learn how to see that. And, and to me, that's the, the piece of photography. If I could just, you know, beat somebody into submission for something, it would be sit and look and see, and then photograph what you see because people are like, well, like the shadow of the microphone. Until you see that, you don't see it. But as soon as right. you see it, yeah. you will never not see it. And colors the same way. And so, <laughs> learn to see, and and that comes from actually seeing. And so, you know, clicking and shooting and running around is great, but you you slow down and go through that process. And the the interesting thing because I still do film. If I sent you out and I gave you one roll of film, and heck, I'll make it easy for you. I'll give you 35 millimeters. You get 36 shots. I tell you, you get 36 shots for the day, and we're going to do street photography, and I'm going to take you down to Carnival, and I'm paying for it, but you get one roll of film, and when you come back, we're going to judge the quality of that. And to somebody else, I'm going to give them digital, and I'm going to tell them, you can create 36,000 photographs today. When I come back and line them up and I lay them out, we probably pull two off the film roll and we probably pull two out of the digital. It's it's the number game isn't the game, it's the scene game. And what happens when we I tell you you only get 36, you're like, whoa, I'm gonna make sure I really am getting this done right. But the hit rate is the same. And so yeah. whether you're shooting 36, two, shoot three, if I take give somebody my eight by 10 large format camera, about the most they can carry is four shots. So you go out for the day, <laughs> Because of the weight, it's 50 pounds. People can take about four plates. And they come back and they're like, wow, you know, I shot those four images. I'm going to keep all four of those. And I'm going to print all four of those. And I think, isn't that amazing? Because if you took your digital yeah. camera out, you would have come back and been like, I'm going to keep four of those. And so <laughs> that's that scene. And that's the, that's the piece I wish that, you know, for all of the pop culture education we do on YouTube and conferences and all that, like just browbeating that scene. And the reason I don't think we do that is it's boring. Teaching people to yeah, see I is love... boring. What we want to see is like, oh, if I take the blend mode and I use divide and I invert the channel and drop the fill back
0: 20%, look what cool thing I can do. Yeah. That is. I love that. Um, the Jay Maisel video where they went through some of his photographs. And again, you know, everything's subjective. He's, everyone's style is different and uh, and we see different things. And the thing I loved about the Jay Maisel documentary that he did with Scott was when he said, I don't go running around New York trying to find photographs. I find a spot and I just sit there and I let New York happen. And then every once in a while, against that brightly coloured wall where those orange traffic cones are, someone in a contrast colour coat reading a newspaper or looking at their phone will walk past. He says, and all i got to do is just sit there. It's like fishing. He says, I don't have to run around. I just let the world happen. And I just wait until I see the thing that I know I want to photograph. And... He gets the shots. I think
2: part of that is is going back to film. Um, I started with film. I'm old enough to actually have started with film. And uh, when I started shooting concerts with film, I had 36 exposures. Not because I couldn't reload film really fast and didn't have a motor drive, but I didn't want to pay for four or five rolls of film every single time I shot a show where I wasn't earning any money. So it cost actual cash money to shoot something. Every frame had a value. Um mm-hmm. nowadays uh you you know go on Facebook or Instagram wherever it is and people are posting 3 400,000 pictures a minute and they're just rushing by and they're putting up the latest one and the next one and the next one there's no real like stopping and looking and seeing at what's going on and I don't carry a camera with me anymore the way I used to. I used to carry a camera everywhere I went like if i didn't have my and i'm not talking like a little point i used to carry my big nikons with me everywhere i went and i don't do that anymore half the time it's like if i see something really cool i just look at it i'm like yeah that's really <laughs> cool and then i have the memory and then i go on i don't feel like i need to capture every single moment of my life every time something happens i mean it's different from the work you know obviously work is work but i think it's a it's a really different idea when you're going back to shooting a few frames or film. And I know, I know Dan, you, you're really into still photographing with film. Um, I had to stop photographing with film as much as I did because the clients wouldn't pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, that's a different, you yeah. know, different there's an economics it. to photography. Yeah. You know, if I went to the arena and I said, you know, I'd love to shoot the next concert just using film and it's going to cost this much extra. They would just, you know, they would just laugh at me. And they'd be like, that's a, that's really cute, but no, um, but for my own, and if you, know, for my own stuff, I go out lots of times and I, and I will, I'll come back from a day and I'll have, you know, maybe 30, 40 shots. And I sometimes don't like any of them. Um, I mean, they're all, you know, they're not bad photos, but they're not worth like investing the time to really sit there. Cause if it's not a, a moment that grabbed me, I'm not going to go into Photoshop and try to fix it. Um, I use that stuff to create the look that i was thinking of when i took the picture but not i'm not going to try to take um junk or use a different word into photoshop and hope that the magic you know make great button works and then it comes <laughs> out looking like a piece of art yeah i,
1: I think what um, you said is interesting too because i think that that notion of speed at which we look at photographs so it's one of the things that social media is in some ways good but in some ways has broke our processing of photography because the average person now spends less than a quarter of a second with a photograph. So yeah. I tell people in my classes I'm like so think about that. Really process that for a second. Which means let's just stay where let's just stay with Instagram. Cuz the speed is actually the speed of the thumb to hit the like button. That's the actual speed the photos looked at. Right. But now let's say like you have a photograph and somebody pauses and they look at it for 1 second. You are now four times more powerful as a visual image than the average photograph. he said, now, in a museum, if you go to the Museum of Modern Art, you go to the Louvre, the average piece of art is looked at for about 13 seconds. And like a piece like the Mona Lisa or Van Gogh's sunflowers is about 17 seconds. So now think about if you get a photograph that somebody sits in front of and they look at for a minute or two. Now, if your goal in life was to create real meaningful photographs, and you created your photograph that you, you took of your own that you're willing to look at for a minute or two minutes or put on your wall and see every day. Think about the power of that photograph in your own life, the significance that has and how it shapes who you are and how you process and see the world. And to me, that's the, you know, that's the driving goal is, you know, like you said, Alan, it's to go out and I find these moments and if I don't have a camera, I get the memory of this amazing experience. And if I happen to have the camera, and I happen to do things right, and I happen to get the exposure right, and I get into Photoshop and get the processing done the way I imagined, and I make that print and I put that on the wall, and I get to live with that and experience that, what an amazing gift that is. And that's the thing I try to tell people is that photography is really a gift. Up until the basically the Brownie camera in 1908, you know, portraits, landscapes, those are for the rich. I mean, rich people paid painters to make a painting, and maybe... 20 people in the world saw it, but photography and the Brownie Camry democratize seeing and capture and art. And so we get this really amazing opportunity to have this gift of sharing, but it, it's meaningful sharing isn't a volume game. It's a, a meaningful game, it's a significant game. And so to find that one photograph to say that, wow, I found this, I took it, and I dedicated the time to process it, and now I'm willing to actually share that, that's, that's huge. And so when people come to my studio and they look around, they say, well, they say to me, like, why aren't your own photographs on the wall? I'm like, well, I know what my photographs look like. (laughs) Like, I want to be inspired by other people's work, you know? And so, like, my favorite thing is when people are like, hey, do you want to do a photo exchange? I'm like, yeah, I want to do a photo exchange. I want your, as long as I get to pick, because I want what inspires me. I want what motivates me and what I see that I find interesting. And, And so I think that's the, you know, the the culmination that I wish people would would realize is that it's really about that, you know, are you emotionally moved by the thing you see? Is that is if that's the driver, um, you know, and and I, I, when my little brother passed away and I had my, my world, I mean, as people, as death of family and close members and friends do, Mm. it really, you know, slingshotted my emotional response to things. And so, I tell my friends, like, oh, I haven't seen it in a while, if we're going to a movie, I'm like, just so you know, I cry in movies now. Like, I'm, I, I don't have that emotional filter anymore. Just that it, and But I've realized that having that willingness to let that emotion be there, it drives my photography now. Because I'm like, if I'm moved to tears by an experience, that's compelling. And when I do portraiture now, like I had, I for 15 years have dug my heels in that I'm not a portrait photographer. I don't do portraits. I do landscapes. I have photographed doorways. I have photographed trees, rocks, and I have had multiple photo critiques and reviews in my life. Ninety percent of them, they'll go through my work and they'll say, "Wow, this is really interesting." So where's your portrait work? And I'm like, "What do you mean portrait work? I photograph trees." They're like, "No, you've made portraits of trees." So you're not willing to take the risk to show people. Go, for, where's your people photography? And I'm like, "Ah, nope, don't do people." And what it what I realized, and this is part of my experience podcast process, all this thing is, is that emotional connection. And this is one of the things that drove me crazy. Like I would go, I've been out with like McNally, Joe McNally, shooting, and we like take a picture, and Joe literally hands me his camera, and I like literally stand in the same spot, same model, same thing, and I push the button. And I look at the back of the camera. I'm like, how is Joe's better? Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I am literally like standing behind the tripod, pushing a button. And what I realized was I watched Joe. So finally I switched. And I'm like, I'm going to watch how Joe shoots. And what I realized was Joe is able to figure out when he has an emotional connection to the person he's photographing. So he's so attuned to that moment of the emotion he has connecting with the subject. And I was like, God, I've got to get that. And what I realized is that's risk. For me to say to myself, I'm going to emotionally put myself out there as a photographer and I'm going to respond to create the work, that's a risk taking element in the photography. And so, and it requires such compassion and, and and honesty to what you're doing. And I think that's why certain people gravitate towards like, whether it's concert photography, landscape photography, portrait photography, when their game elevates and you look at images and you're like, oh my gosh, there is something about that work. And it could be in design. It's in cinema. It's definitely in cinema. You just get, there's this rawness that the person was willing to really expose who they were and as I've been going back through because part of COVID has got everybody home and I mean I live on an island and I'm raising a new puppy and all that so I got stuff but mm. I've been going through all of my old photographs and I'm like god these are just terrible photographs and so I was like backslide, I felt like I was oh I'm backsliding I'm like going back into my I'm a bad photographer I don't know what I'm doing why does anybody with me and what I realized was in my collection of Photographs is as I'm building a pile of keep to print because that's how I'm using my free time is I'm printing everything that I think should have a print I'm making a print of and What I'm realizing is oh my gosh, I have a lot of photographs that I just made Because I thought I was supposed to make them because I thought it was cool. I'm here I'm gonna photograph the waterfall because I'm here and then I'm finding photographs of like a fern that I took in the forest And I'm like, oh my god, like I just sit with the fern. and I'm like in love with that one fern and i
0: realized that's, like there's one at the top of your website isn't yeah, there that's a fern. yeah yeah
1: and i love ferns so it's, it's one it's my it's my thing there's eventually going to be the book called fern um fern. between two between ferns, ferns yes. and <laughs> a sea of, between a sea of ferns i think uh i don't want it Zach to assume so between
2: a sea of ferns <laughs> uh, there's and this, the interesting part is we've all shot or seen joe mcnally work I mean, if you've, I've been out shooting with him. I know, Dave, you, you actually assisted him in a workshop he was doing up in, in London. You were there, and I've, I've, yeah. I've shot with him and assisted him here. And the one thing about him that, that I always took away from is Joe spends very little time looking through the lens behind the camera. He spends most of the time talking to the person he's photographing. He gets that connection going so that there is that emotional spot that when he does take the image, you're like, oh, holy crap, he just nailed that, the perfect moment. Um, for me, that doesn't happen very often because the people I'm usually photographing, A, don't care that I'm there, and B, pay no attention to me whatsoever, so I have no connection. There, They have no connection back and forth. I have to figure out what's working for me. I have to be the moment the images that speak to me are the ones that I'm like, oh, yeah, that that, that emotion came through. I felt that right then and there, and those are the images that work. It's It's different when you're shooting inanimate objects, obviously, because... They don't care that you're there either. Um. Yeah, there's a a
1: great quote by Minor White um, who, in the intellectual world of photography, Minor White thought a lot and wrote a lot. Um, But somebody asked Minor one time, how do you know when to click the shutter? And he said, oh, that's, that's easy. It's when the object of your affection acknowledges your presence. And the student said back to Minor, he's like, but you photograph rocks and trees. He's like, yep. (laughs) <laughs> and so the guy's like what do you mean he's like miner's like i sit there until the rock tells me it's okay to make the photograph he's like it might take six hours it might take two minutes he's like "But i wait until the subject tells me they're ready so in that like you said alan it's that you recognize the emotion that you felt conveyed in that moment that's when you know to push the shutter and i think for all photographers we have to figure that out what is that drive to actually yeah, push the like- shutter and that requires an awareness. It can't just be hold the shutter down. It
0: has to be something that triggers that. And, and I think for everybody, it's yeah. probably different. Ma- but And that makes sense. Because if you think, if you are sat in a location and you are looking at a rock and there's maybe a tree, you're waiting for the right sunlight, the right cloud, the right atmospheric It's not really about the rock. It's just all the other things falling into place. When all of a sudden that scene turns into that painting. And you're like, okay, all the colour is here that I need. All the mood and atmosphere is, is here that I need. And something you said about looking at the photograph for a very short amount of time. I had to write this down so I didn't forget it. And then you went and mentioned Joe McNally. And it's like, oh, I love guests that pull all my questions together in one go. I remember Joe saying, I think it was at a Photoshop World or the photography show he said in all the years that i've been shooting and i've been at the top of power pylons with guys changing the light bulbs i've been hanging out of vehicles i've been you know stood stood in a place for hours on end you know i've lit 30 flashes to get the you know to get the right image he said do you know what my most viewed photograph is ever in my whole career my shoes at the top of Burj Khalifa, <laughs> looking down, and he says, "Because it was on Instagram, everyone's seen it on Instagram. It's his most viewed image, and it's a picture of his feet. And it's like that's that's kind of a weird that that's a today thing, you know. That's because of the the, the life that we're in. Now, probably so many people know that photograph, but don't know it's Joe McNally." And then there's all these other Joe McNally shots we know, like the famous ones where he's like the fireman at 9-11 and where he's hanging off the top of the tower and they're changing the light bulbs and that and his National Geographic work. But it's just such a weird thing now with with this digital world and with this social media world and the way that people consume your work, I'd say mine as well as a designer, but your work is... I do think that you're right. There are some photographers who feel too much pressure to photograph for the sake of it, whereas, like what you're saying, is you have a very deliberate plan about what you want to shoot and what you want to come from that. And I think that's an art in itself of of having patience because of you know digital, can you can just go and go home and then run it through Photoshop and then Lightroom and then Topaz and then On One and I think the patience of photography is really a thing that a lot of newer photographers have lost. It's an art form. Yeah,
1: I would agree with that. And I think the other piece on that is that is the probably the one of the biggest lessons I've learned in the last couple of years is the importance of self-forgiveness. And that as I get out and make shots, you know, I come back and I didn't get the shot I wanted. I was in the location was right, it didn't happen. So, I can beat myself up over that. I'm not a big social media driver. Like I can't spend hours on Instagram. I just have other things going on. It's not my it's not my thing. It is for some people, mm-hmm. and I think that's great, because that's their 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 thing. But I used to just get so like, oh, I've got to post. I gotta. I gotta. And what I learned is if I have to do something, that's outside like client work, because I do have galleries and clients that I have responsibilities to, but outside of that, I'm like, why am I doing something? I'm like, oh. I just got to let myself, I got to cut myself some slack on that. It's not the end all be all into the world. And at that same time that I went through a spell where, I mean, I didn't want, want to pick up a camera for months and I didn't like, I just couldn't, there was nothing compelling about picking up a camera for me. So unless a client called and said, you owe me, like I had to go shoot a artist painting. Like I, I mean, I, I got to eat. So, you know, I'm not just fine art. I'm shooting art <laughs> and stuff. And a client called and says, you have to go do this. So I picked the camera up for that, but, And then he's like, oh, are you creating a lot of work? You know, just, I'm like, "Ah, yeah, no, things are good. I'm like, I want to have this conversation about how I'm like in a lull can't actually pick up a camera and I want to sell all my equipment. Um, And so, but I've learned over time that that's just, that's life. I mean, sometimes you're not in the mood to mow the lawn and the grass just keeps growing and that's okay. I mean
2: yeah it's like yeah, musicians it's like writer's block yeah it's it's artist yeah. block you know their days are i feel right now with this lockdown that i'm seeing all these images coming out of new york and and arizona specifically the the nurses standing up to protest or standing and i'm like man that and i looked at that picture for way more than a few seconds i, I stared at that thing probably for a good 20 minutes because it was just so powerful of a shot and i was like and, and I always know when I really like something because in my brain I went, I wish I would have taken that. Yeah, that's, that's kind <laughs> of. I'm, I really like like when I when I see something and I go, oh, I wish I would have taken that. But I also am not leaving my house. I am not going out to to create any work outside of what I need to do. And I and I've been to the arena for a blood drive, you know, things like that. And I am not out there looking for the empty streets or those kind of images because. Uh, right now, I don't feel like that's what I need to do to be creative. I can be creative here and stay safe and do the rest of it. But when I saw the, that image, I was like, "That's you know, I'm I I wanted to take that, and um, I think that's the highest compliment I can have. Someone looks at something and goes, "Oh man, you know, not I love it or not that's great, but oh, I wish I could have made that or created that or seen that."
1: Oh yeah, that 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 nurse photo is just oh my god. That I'm the same insane. way. Like I just and like. I thought, is it, should I just, should I just download that so I can keep it, I, am just, I, and then I was like, oh, maybe that'll be like, it's a, it'll be like in the FSA, maybe that's a library of Congress photographer and that'll just go in the archive or, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, that is a haunting power yeah, image. It,
2: it, it was, yeah, and that was one of those things where, you know, it's like someone took the time, they waited for that moment to happen. Now they might've, they might've taken 500 shots before and after that. It might've been motor driven all the way through, but the other thing they did, and I think it's really important as a photographer, they showed one. Well, they showed a group, but they only showed one of that. They showed a couple of other scenes going on, but there wasn't like they didn't dilute their own work by showing 15 images of the same person standing in front of the same car from, you know, with a with an eight hundredth of a second between, you know, all the images. Um, and I, I'm going to, Dave's probably going, what he's going at? I'm going to switch a little bit because you do a lot of printing. Yeah. So, so you are looking again at whatever you shot all day. And then you're picking this one. This is the one that I want to spend the time to print. Now I used to print, I don't have a big printer anymore, but I've done a lot of artwork printing wise um, for comic book artists. And one of the things I used to do was we used to print their one of one comic art printing. So I understand the process behind it. It's not just load the digital file and hit the print button. That's not how printing works. You have to color correct. You have to match the paper. You have to match all that other stuff. So you're spending a lot of time working on a single image. What has that done for your creative process? Do you think of that when you're out there shooting, or or how much has the printing influenced how you photograph stuff?
1: That's a great, great question. Um, huh,
2: stumped him.
1: What I what I. What I tell people, so if you, if you came to like my studio for one of my printing workshops or if I saw you at Photoshop World and, and you happen to come to one of my sessions, whether it's on printing or not, what I tell people is there is nothing, and I believe this to my core, there is nothing you can do as a photographer that will make you a better photographer faster than having prints of your work. And the reason for that is no sin is forgiven in the print. And so what happens is there's a mental shift in us when we have things on the computer screen because it's infinitely editable. So I can change it. I can move it. I can change it. And then what happens is our brain starts to not see things because, oh, I can change the color. I can remove dust spots. I can do blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden the brain's like, I don't need to change the color. The colors, like it just literally, the brain starts to fix things on the screen that aren't there. In the printing world, the the lesson you have to learn early on is whatever comes out of the printer is correct. It's the dumbest thing in the entire printing process. So whatever the printer spits out is correct. It's a default device. It's called the default device. So it's it's whatever it is. So if the print comes out and it's too dark, too muddy, too purple, too green, that means you sent it information that made the print too dark, too purple, too green, miscropped, whatever. And so once it's tangible and you hold it and you look at it all those sins come out because you're like oh my god I can't change this and a little to what you said earlier alan about getting film cost and I just spent freaking money to do this <laughs> oh my god and so that's why I tell people buy a printer if you're gonna print buy a printer and people are like well they cost like a thousand dollars I'm like yep and if you go to bay photo and have a professional 16 by 20 made at 60 dollars. screw that up 10 times you just paid for the printer like it doesn't take long to offset the cost so in that world of printing, the print is the final piece of feedback because it is, it is truly the point at which the artist says, I'm done. When they have a, a final image, and one of the things I talk about, and I talked about this in one of my podcasts, the notion of signature worthy is important outside the marketing space. But when you think about a contract, you sign a contract that says, these are the terms that have been outlined, outlined by two parties, I agree to these terms and somebody else does. And we say we agree to those terms by putting our name on that. When we make a print and we may make iterations and work through it and we got to get color right and crop right and fix dust spots we missed and all that. But when we get done and we say, this print is finished and I put my name to it, there is such power in saying, I am putting my name to this as something that I am completed with, I am happy with. I believe is the best at this moment in time this is the best I can do and so there's I think there's a huge benefit to that I think there's also a huge benefit when we start to realize that if I hang a photograph on a wall and I'm trying to decide if it's right or not I mean and we just see this I mean I work when I worked in design and marketing we do the same thing we put the spread up on the wall and we step back it instantly makes that quarter of a second problem go away because I now have to look at the image. And so if I'm printing my own work and I put it up on my view wall and I'm like, okay, so how's that look? Okay, I'm not sure about that crop. Oh, and I think I'm gonna fix that. And I need to, oh, there definitely is a weird kind of, that sky's got a little purple in it that needs to go. I'm now teaching myself to see. And so this is the feedback loop that the print gives you is I'm not teaching myself to see that print. I'm teaching myself to see so that when I then pick up the camera and I go outside again, I start to change my point of view. I start to think about things like, oh, in the print, this is what's potentially going to happen. Oh, if I'm going to print this larger and I might need to crop in, I'm going to give myself a little step back and give myself a little wider angle or the one I see all the time now because of Adobe's math. Oh, I'm going to do a perspective control change. Well, if I crop and do it exactly right in camera, And I don't give myself the latitude for Adobe to fake and bend pixels. All of a sudden, I don't have the image right. So the print tells me like, oh, when I moved that last time, I didn't have enough room. I got to give myself a wider angle. All of these little decisions I might make get accentuated in that print. And so having that definitive statement of where I'm at is important. The other piece that I find so interesting about prints and photographers in general too is if I ask the average person, like, your house is on fire and you get out running, run you're going to save a photograph, what do you grab? And people are like, oh, I go in, there's a picture of my kid on the mantle. And I'm like, oh, you saved the print? You didn't go rip your hard drive out of your computer? Because the prints are the things that live with this. When I ask people, like, what's the greatest Ansel Adams photograph? They don't tell me about a negative. They're like, oh, it's Moonrise <laughs> over Hernandez, the print Moonrise over Hernandez. If I ask anybody about an image, it's an image they've seen. And if I said to Alan, I'm like, oh, so I can give you a copy of that. Uh, I know the person who shot the nurse down in Arizona. Um, I can get you a 16 by 20 print of that, or I can get you a 600 by 800 JPEG for you to have. Which one do you want? I I, I want the print. You want the print? Oh, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, the print is the photograph. And this is... Why in the language? So in my podcast, I talk about this all the time. There's a reason we have a word image. There's a reason we've created Instagram. There's a reason we've created photograph. There's a reason we've created snapshot. We, there's a reason we've created all these words. They distinguish things. And so when I work with a lot of photographers, they'll say, oh, that's just a snap. I don't want to print that. That's a snapshot. I'm like, well, isn't it a photograph? They're like, no, no. Photographs are things that are good.
2: <laughs>
1: so there's these weird hierarchies people build. And what the print does is it forces you into that conversation. The other thing I think the print does, that's so interesting and it's, uh, uh, Alan, you I think phrased it beautifully earlier, when we have 25 images. So I went out and I shot 20 images. I've got to now curate my eye to see what is the best of those 20. And so when I'm now said, okay, I'm not gonna print 20, I'm gonna print one of these 20 that are in the sequence What do I pull that is the best of the work I've created? And so to be able to go and say, this one is the best of those photographs is teaching me as a photographer what I saw that was better than the other ones. It's a a way for me to learn and teach myself composition, framing, and all of that, looking at my own work to extract what is the best of the the pieces. One of the greatest books you could buy to elevate your photography is a book called uh, Magnum Contact Sheets. You probably have to get it used at this point. They reissue it every once in a while. And there's another book called Contact Sheets. But what they did was they took the contact sheet that these master photographs came off of. So on the left is the contact sheet, on the right is the actual image. And you get to see, and in some cases they give you the conversation about why was that image selected? But you get to look at the contact sheet and be like, oh, I would have chosen numbers frame six, but they chose frame nine. But you get to yeah. see that how that evolution happens. And the other thing you start to realize This is the thing I love how Alan said, is you got this sequence of images that usually it's something leading up, the event happens and something leads off, and that you realize this isn't somebody walked up, picked their camera up and hit one shot and they're done. We we portray that as the internet way of creating photography, (laughs) but the actual photographer is like they're starting to see an event unfold and they start to shoot. Then the moment happens, they shoot a few more frames and realize, oh, the moment has passed. And then the recognition to go in and pull that. Cartier-Bresson, I mean, as much as he, I mean, Cartier-Bresson hated the decisive moment. He's like, I didn't come up with that phrase. I didn't make that phrase. It was actually created by Schuster from Simon & Schuster. um, Named the book that. Uh, But Cartier was the same way. If you look at Cartier's contact sheets, he would sit in some spots for six hours waiting because he had the geometry right, the design right. He was a designer. So he had the design right waiting for the moment. But same thing. You look at Cartier's contact sheets and you're like, oh my gosh, There's a bunch of these little things moving and then all of a sudden you're like, that's the photograph I know. And then those kids walked away. But you realize like, no, he took like five, six frames, eight frames to get that one. And that's the other piece that print does, is it forces you to make that decision. You can't just say, well, there's eight good ones.
0: Nope. There's one good one.
1: And it forces that conversation. You know,
0: when you've got your camera, when you're out, and even I know when I've had my phone or something with me, you know when the moment's gone you know not to pick up the camera it's like oh a thing oh it's just it's just happened all i'm going to capture now is everything that happened after the thing that was really good and that's that's with a lot of photographers is they can't distinguish between the the pre and the post they just think well i i I got a photograph or i got an image because like you said to me The image is what's on the camera and the photograph is what's printed. I will always say take a photo. I don't do the make an image or any of those like newer terms. But yeah, the image is what's on the camera. The photograph is what you print. And the photograph is the one that's very deliberate. It's the, has it got all the pieces? It's the realisation of what you saw. Yeah, and I'd love I'd love an exercise for photographers because we spoke to Julianne Cost and she said she prints out all her work at the end of the year and she makes a book for herself and then she looks at the work that she does to see what pieces go together. Did she su- subconsciously find herself pursuing a particular thing? But I always think, it, like you've just said, it'd be great for a photographer to... Say you go out and you do get 10 images of a thing and you've picked the one you want but you ask five random people to pick the best one out of those 10 to see whether they all agree with you or do they pick something else because of another reason
1: yeah and and the other thing i would i would say with that exercise too is if you get your say top 10 is have them actually stack rank them so give them a different color marker And so on the back, they can just take one through 10 and run the stack ranking through. And so what you're then forcing people to do is to start to think about a sequencing order as well. So you can start to realize like, because some photographs as individuals aren't that strong, but when paired with another photograph become incredibly powerful. And so as we start to like, think about like, oh, well, I really like number two. But if I put number one next to number two, I really like number one better because of the, the characteristics there. And so that, to me, is a way to take exactly what you said and give yourself another exercise. So pick the best, but then also run the sequence. The other exercise in that same vein that, you know, a little bit what Julianne does, uh, John Paul Cappenegra does this, 20 best images of the year. I mean, there's a lot of photographers who kind of pull that. But the other thing I would encourage photographers to do is pull what you think is the best work you did in the last year. And it doesn't matter if it's iPhone photo, Big camera photo, as Julianne Koss would say, her big girl camera. Uh, any whatever your your medium is, pull your 20, 30, 40 of your most important photographs, your most significant photographs. Doesn't matter what the subject is, doesn't matter if you understand how they relate. Pull those together. Print them. They don't have to be big. You can make just contact sheets, four by six, but and then get them on a wall and live with them for about four or five days. Just look at them give yourself a couple hours here and there over the course of a week looking at the photographs. Then no headphones, no podcast, no music in the background. Sit down in front of those photographs with a blank piece of paper and write down everything you experienced about the photographs. And even if you repeat it like uh, you know there's there's passionate rainbows of love and then you're like I'm loving rainbows and doesn't matter what you're doing. Just throw out and barf onto that page all the language you have around that. And what you'll start to see is the underpinnings of the things that actually matter to you in your photography. So the significance of what is it that really drives you as a photographer, not color and composition, because those are tools by which we storytell. But really, what is the core of your story? Are you a horror novelist? Are you a romance novelist? Are you an adventure novelist? But look at those photographs and see what pulls out of that. And then when you then go out and photograph the next time, instead of saying to yourself, I'm going to go photograph, I'm going to go to Yosemite and I'm going to photograph the most amazing landscapes ever because I've never been. That's a perverted expectation to put on yourself because the weather could be crappy, things could happen. Yeah. But if you said, I'm going to go to Yellowstone and I'm at my core, I'm a romance novelist. How do I tell a love story of my relationship to Yosemite. I'm going to photograph that. So now all of a sudden, your composition, your frame, everything becomes the narrative storytelling element of who you are. That starts to be, when we get to vision, voice, style, all those characteristics that make us who we are, that's how we start to figure out what that is. And you get to own that. And some people are like, well, I don't want to be a romance novelist. Well, you are, because you've been photographing it for 20 years. You may (laughs) not like it, but that's who you are. Um, and so with that experience of doing that, that's the conversation to have when you go out and shoot the next time. So rather than I'm going to shoot a subject, it's I'm going to get to that emotion, cons- that aspect. So that how Joe gets the relationship built, you build that relationship with yourself and your work. And then that's what you go out with the next time. So when I it's one of the things I've been working with the last several years, and I've been working with it. A lot of people I mentor have been working with the same exercise. But I found in my own work, it makes such a huge difference when I get to go out and say, today, I'm going to go photograph what it means to feel loss. Like today, I'm just sad because my brother died. So I'm going to go photograph what loss looks like. Today, I just feel like there's this amazing lightness to the world. So I'm going to go photograph what light and airy feels like, whatever it is. And if I'm a landscape photographer, it's still landscape work. But it's just that different sensibility and from that starts to get more significant work because now you're dealing with who you are in the photograph rather than the subject being what the photograph's about, the subject matter is the photograph. The subject then becomes who you are in that storytelling. But to me, that's the the, the takeaway I would give somebody if they were looking for a fun exercise to do while they're at home. I'm not
0: saying that everybody's Speaking at of home. Which, but if you're at home no. <laughs> say for well, a couple yeah. of weeks this would be a good exercise. Yeah. Speaking of what you've just said there, the thing I wanted that to lead into was education. So we met through, Kel- oh. through Kelby One, through Photoshop World. I remember, in fact, no, my first experience of you was, I remember RC, Concepcion, getting really excited because he got you into Kelby One and did that first class. And that was the first time I was aware of who you were. And then I saw you were going to be at Photoshop World and I got to meet you at Photoshop World. I think the first one we met was the one with Stacy, uh, when Stacy Pearson was also yeah. there. And then, and then subsequently another one, probably the following year. And that's that that world of education. I know Alan's come into it because that's where we met at Photoshop World. It's got a lot to answer for. Photoshop World. Um, at how, what point did you? Because I ask us of all the photographers, because, you you know, you when you go back to when you started what you wanted to be and now we're all, you know, post 40, That that crossover, that line where you suddenly feel I'm a photographer and an educator. What was the point for you where you were like, OK, I need to teach this now? I feel qualified enough to teach it and this is an additional path I want to do. Um, so, I, I have a
1: master's degree um, in communication studies. I studied rhetoric and a bunch of different things. Um, and I, I had to be a TA. Uh, I didn't have to be a TA. I paid my bills by being a TA. Uh, and so, I enjoyed teaching, but I didn't enjoy any of the academic, collegiate, publisher, or parish stuff. So, I decided not to continue on to a, a, a master's degree or a PhD, but I did enjoy the teaching aspect there. But that was in my early 20s. In the photography space, um, I, my my career and background was was in computers, and I actually helped do. I worked in data centers at Microsoft and corporations, and did big computer stuff. And I've always had kind of a quick uh, technical aptitude. So I just have, and it's probably in part because of my way my learning disability works. I just absorb information really fast, and so I would sit through a photo class and like retain a hundred percent of what I heard, like. If they're like, this is like, as soon as we walk the F stop, I'm like, oh, cool. So it's 2.8, 4, 5, 6, 8, 11, 16, 22, 32, 40. I'm like, got it. And like, reciprocals, got it. Like just my brain just stored it. Um, and then I got really interested in like just some of the nuances of how do you manipulate film and papers and, and digital was coming out. And my first job in Seattle, I was actually a Photoshop phone rep. So I, when people called, hi, hey, thanks for calling Adobe Tech Support. And they were like, Photoshop doesn't work. It's the worst program ever. I'm like, have you restarted? <laughs> now, the, uh, So that was my my job. So I learned the nuts and bolts of Photoshop. Like not the, I literally didn't know how to edit a photograph, but I knew what every tool did and what every command did and what every layer option was. And it was right around the time 555 was coming out. So color management was getting involved. So I was learning a lot of low-level color management and working with Linotronic printers and all sorts of stuff. So, I just had a lot of information sitting there. Um, And at the school uh, where I teach now, I actually uh, did their program. I was just needed something to do. So I did their program and I started to TA there just to help out some of my friend instructors. And that kind of led me down that path. The piece with RC came about because we were having a conversation and it was one of the things about he was struggling with a little bit with being at Kelby actually, because it was a lot of, 10 steps to this, six steps to this. And he said that he, Scott, and the group had realized they were kind of hitting a wall of like, you need the next step. You need to make some next leap in that. And so they were doing some experimentation in that in that process. And uh, we, you know, you, you had attended Photoshop World, you saw a change in some of the content, some of the pre-cons, they started to get much more experiential and hands-on and things like that. So they would say we're working with that. And but in that conversation with RC, it was really how do you meaningfully talk about your work? Because uh, that's really at my core, and I think part of it's because of my rhetoric background at the university. Language was so important. How do we talk about work? And so that was a little a, a niche thing I had. So that was something I was interested in. I could communicate that, and RC and I just had a really great conversation on that. And that's what led me down to Kelby. Was Scott told or? RC told Scott, "You gotta have a conversation with this guy because he talks about photography different than how we talk about photography, and that would be kind of cool to, to have that conversation." So that's how I ended up down at 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 the Kelby World. But the education side for me, longer term, um, is I don't think everybody's a great teacher. I don't think everybody's a great instructor. I've had I've had I'm just gonna say there's been occasions I've been in a classroom where I've been at a conference and I thought. I just literally paid a thousand dollars to hear this Yahoo basically do
0: nothing. oh, you've been someone about <laughs> uh, I wish it was a thousand dollars and so uh
1: so in that in that world, I was like, god, i just I'm good at teaching, I like teaching, I like sharing information i'm I love it when somebody's light bulb turns on and they realize they're better today than they were yesterday and that there's hope for tomorrow and I was like, I really like that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and just bite the bullet, and I'm gonna actually decide to do that. Serendipity, at the same time, I was talking to John Paul Caponegro, Mac Holbert, Moose Peterson, McNally, anybody who was a photographer, anybody. I talked to, I interviewed uh, uh, Jack Dakinga I interviewed uh, book publishers from Aperture. I interviewed everybody, and I'm like, okay, I'm ready to make this leap to do photography, and they're like, oh. So you need multiple fires, irons in the fire. They're like, you know, you can't be a stock photographer anymore. That market's dead. You can't be an event photographer only. That market's dying. There's just the competitions. There's all this stuff. So like, you got to do multiple things. And they're like, what do you like? I'm like, well, I like teaching. And they're like, there you go. There's one of your irons. And I'm like, and I like fine art gallery shows. They're like, great. There's your other iron. They're like, and I like, and that's how I got my career built was I really figured out what do I like and what am I good at? And those became the four or five irons I tend in the fire. Um, I mean, if I had my druthers, yeah, I'd make a living making cool photographs, putting in them in a gallery. People would pay me $50,000. I'd sell 50 a year, and I'd be a millionaire, and it'd be awesome. But that's not the way photography... Yeah, hello, Peter yeah, Lick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I wouldn't have to show anybody an invoice to prove it, but yeah, sure. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you could, and you'd be able to get the moon to go in front of clouds. Yes, exactly, <laughs> and, and, and be able to say yeah. that I've never used Photoshop. Um, yeah. So the... The, the sensibility of, of, of that education came from I'm good at I'm actually good at it it's one of the things I do own I'm very passionate about teaching I love teaching um, and the, the I would say the downside I, I have is I get so excited I just cram information in people's heads so uh, one of the, the jokes that happened I still get people I bump into who from a Photoshop conference actually Photoshop World conference uh, somebody backed out and got sick or something so Scott asked me if I would do a sharpening. Presentation forty five minutes on sharpening the Lightroom or whatever. I'm like sharpening in forty five minutes. I'm like I have like a nine hour class on that. Like that I teach it. And I'm like forty <laughs> five like, minutes. So and it was like eight a.m. on the on the on Ooh. the middle day. So you know everybody's hungover from midnight madness and all that. So we get in there and there's like you know it's Photoshop. So there's like two hundred fifty people in the room. And I'm like you all are here at eight a.m. for sharpening. I'm like, that's weird. I'm like, well, here's the deal. Um, this is normally nine hours of teaching I do because I don't do Lightroom sharpening. I do sharpening. So it's Photoshop. It's Lightroom. We go through the core elements. I'm like, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, so I decided rather than cut it to 45 minutes, I'm just going to talk really fast. And I'm going to give you the nine hours in 45 minutes. <laughs> and so I literally just started talking like I was an auctioneer. And literally everybody in the room, I could see their chairs pushed back from the table. And I'm like, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. We're just gonna do. Stuff. <laughs> but uh, but I love to give out information, so I uh, I uh, I love to share. So that's my, my education thing is I just I love sharing information. I love being around people who share. And my biggest probably pet peeve with photographers is if I walked up to you, Dave, or I walked up down and I said, Hey, you know, I saw this this cool photograph or this, you know, you were doing the constant. How did you do that? And you're like, Oh, you know, that's, that's kind of my my shtick. I, I kind of keep that a secret. I'm literally like middle finger up, punch you in the face. I'm like, (laughs) if you think that's your gift is that you have some secret sauce. Now I'm just going to figure this out on my own. And I'm just going to like bust your chops for the rest of my life because we share. We're community people. We're a shared community. We should be sharing everything we know because my vision of who I am as a photographer is not defined by a technique. It's my scene. So All All that sharing, all that information I can give, I want everybody to give it back to me. And so that's the other piece education-wise. I figured if I freely give everything I know, it's going to entice people to freely give everything they have back to me. So like recently, if I run into a 3D problem in Photoshop, I know I can call Corey Barker and say, Corey, I can't figure this out. And Corey's not going to be like,
2: "Mm, sorry, dude.
0: I'm not going to help you. It's my thing, yeah,
2: it's my thing yeah. man. So, so dude, you, you just nailed one of my pet peeves of all time because um, everyone was like, well, you're telling people the secrets to do your job and they're going to take your job away from you because they're going to know how to. It, a, it's a camera. It only has three settings. If you can't figure those three out, you know, I, I can't really help you. But there's only three settings. So, there's not like there's a magic fourth button, you know, um, to make things great. It's just the three aperture iso and shutter speed that's it oh i thought it was a for amateur p for professional (laughs) and m for more professional (laughs) yeah that's you know that it it always struck me as crazy and i would have people um i'll never forget this at the house of blues in la it's a tiny little photo pit i'm about to shoot billy idol doing five day residency there and this woman next to me with her flash on her camera leans over and goes do i have the right settings like The lights are coming down. The curtain is going up. This is not the best time to be (laughs) asking that question. But I leaned over and I went, stick it onto that. Turn it on aperture priority. Take the flash off. And, you know, and people looked at me like, why did you help her? I'm like, why wouldn't I help her? And if you think that I've been in a photo pit with 60 other photographers, six zero shooting the same three songs from the same band. And all of us got different shots. And it wasn't because we all had different cameras. We all looked at things differently. And I can teach you everything I know about how to take the picture, and you can still go out, and you'll either get a great shot or a bad shot. But that has nothing to do with what I taught you. That has to do with you being able to see. I can't actually – you're teaching people how to look and see. I can't – I can show you, but I can't teach you how to actually see. You have to do that yourself. And that part of sharing has been great, which is why all the photographers I always look up to are the guys who are absolutely willing to sit down and go – oh, yeah, dude, that, if you want the settings, that's fine. But here's what I was thinking. Here's my thought process behind it. Here's here's what I was trying to convey. Here's the story I was trying to tell. And that always meant a whole lot more to me than, you know, okay, that was shot at 2.8, 1,600, 250 of a second. Um, and uh, I, I don't know who it was that, and way back when, but it had it was someone said, if you see someone's photograph, just look at the photograph. There's no, they can't stand behind you and go, okay, so what I was thinking when I took this was that the sun was coming through the clouds and that the, you know, they're not there. The photograph has to speak for itself. It has to be just that image doing it. And so telling people how to take it or to teach about it is not going to diminish the fact that you can do it or create it. And so yeah. that really I mean, that whole idea that it's a secret that I have to hold my photography private and can't let you know how to do it is such crap
0: that it... it's like a, it's like a, an oh. impersonator when they come on and go, G'day, like oh I I'm Paul Hogan or I I am I'm, I'm president, but I'm not gonna even try and do the impression. The minute they have to tell you who the impression is, they're not very good, yeah. you should be able to hear that voice and go, Oh my god, that's Trump, that's Obama, that's that film star, thats Matthew McConaughey. The minute they have to tell you what it is and explain it, uh, it's you know, like with a joke. With a joke is if you have to put that much explanation into it, it didn't do its yeah, job. I, I don't know whether you agree with that, but that's how I feel about it.
1: I know, and I agree, and I think you know, it's. Uh, I think it speaks to insecurity versus security in yourself as as a creator. That if I'm insecure, I think there is some secret camera setting, and I don't want to tell you what it is because you might be better than me where if I'm comfortable with who I am as a photographer, great. And the other one is, you know, if I took the three of us and we went to say anywhere to shoot and we get back, I'm not, you know, like I might be like, Oh God, I wish I'd gotten that shot that Alan or Dave made, but I'm not going to be like, Oh, well, you know, this is a problem now. Cause you know, Alan got a better photograph than me. I'm just like, wow, I can't believe Alan got a cool, that's such a cool photograph. Like, and it's that weird insecurity of like, somehow I'm diminished because somebody else got a good photograph.
0: Like, yeah. I, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm. Or the technical yeah. side comes in. My, I remember my dad loved golf. My dad played golf. The reason I never took up golf is because I saw all the crap that people bought him for his birthday and Christmas. And I never wanted all that crap. So I thought I won't play golf. So we used to go in the garden. We used to like dig a hole in the ground, get a couple of golf balls and dad would come out and we'd get the putter and we'd, just like try and knock it into the hole. So dad would stand there, he'd get his grip, and he'd look up and he'd tap it, and uh, the ball might be two inches from the hole, and he'll go, "That was, you know, that was a really good shot." Me, I get the club, I hold it out straight in front of me in line with the hole, I pull it down to my feet, I flip it on its side ninety degrees, and then I hit the ball as hard as I think it goes in the hole, instead of. Instead of the the fact that I, I achieved what I set out to do, I got the ball in the hole. He criticised me for the way I took the shot, <laughs> the way I held the club, <laughs> the way I approached it. And I, and I just love that analogy with photography. It's just when you get so hung up on, like you say, three photographs and somebody going, yo, you just took yours with an iPhone. I used the Hasselblad, da, da, da. And I had these settings. And, yeah, it doesn't matter does not matter it does not matter i think it was it was it rob sylvan's one we said alan about no one gives a crap how long it took you to get there or what happened or what you have for breakfast or the adventure or the bus broke down and you helped a, a nun a bus full of nuns had broken down you changed the tire on the coach nobody cares about the story all they can do is look at the image and does it speak to them and is it is it the the work you are proud of in that in that 250th of a second or whatever, and i think it's
1: it's it's a weird perverted thing because the photographer is not your target market for your image no and so it, no, what i know i tell people is go to a go to any museum or any gallery or a coffee shop that has photography on the wall and then just spend 40 minutes walking around and listen to what everybody says about the work they're all going that lighthouse yeah they never say like is that a fuji is that a fuji yeah is that is that f4 like i'm like only photographers do that and i'm like and the thing too is i said if you then start to go into those and you start to go with photographers who are really comfortable with their own craft they also stop asking about cameras they start saying things like wow that's amazing that's incredible you know i i was uh because uh, of RC's connection uh, to Greg Heisler. Um, we were looking at some yes, images yeah. of Greg Heisler, and Greg's, uh, I remember Greg saying, Oh my God, that's just a stunning portrait. It's so beautiful, blah, 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 blah. But Heisler wasn't like, You know what, if they shot that with an 8x10 camera, or if they're using a hassle? Like, none of that. Like, it was just an amazing photograph. And I remember that. Like, he's. So comfortable with who he is as a photographer that he doesn't have to feel competitive to the image on the wall. It's just he appreciates the image on the wall. And so, although I do remember uh, 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 Mazel used a lot of profanity to describe a couple of photographs he wishes he had taken. So, I mean, there is, I mean, even the greats, you know, have
2: a little envy sometimes. Well, to be honest, you know, Maisel will use a lot of profanity to describe (laughs) breakfast. So you gotta, you know, um, and I, have been lucky enough to sit down and talk with him at some Photoshop worlds over the years. And, you know, again, um, just soaking in as much as I possibly can and, and, you know, loving every minute of it, uh, I just, I had one little like last little question cause I know we're running up against a, a, a little time thing here, yeah. but uh, when you're looking at your images right back to that last little like, okay, so a lot of us are going back through our images now because we're not out shooting new stuff and we're looking to see, okay, did I miss a gem somewhere along the way? Did I did I miss something? Um, and I know for me it's it's tough because I'm looking at stuff going that I shot 10 years ago, um, I've just for some odd reason I picked 2010 and 2011 to look at, to start with and I'm seeing all these little cringeworthy mistakes that I consider mistakes now, that back then I was just happy to get a proper exposure. Um, when you're looking through your work, even now with the old one, what, what's like the first thing that jumps out to you that you're like, okay, this is the shot that I can start to think about processing and editing and, and printing? Like, is there one moment? Is it an emotional contact? You're like, oh, that was a great day, or is it something that you look at and go, man, the green in that is just like, print worthy
1: um, so that's a great question I, I, I think there's two on, I, I think I have two on, honest answers to that um, I think one of them is and it goes back to being an awareness shooting one of the things I've been I work on in my photography is that feeling when I look at a photograph it's either the pit in my stomach or my heart beats a little faster or the hairs on the back of my neck raise up because I'm like wow that's amazing there is an emotional response to it and so when I go back through old images, I'm looking for a, almost a visceral physical response to the image. Like, oh, my gosh, I can feel that in my chest. Like, God, that's really just, I connect with that. And, and I really consciously try to have that relationship first when I go through the images, then the technical nitpicking stuff. Because I can nitpick forever on older images because my skill set is better today than it was 10 years ago. But my emotional strength isn't any necessarily weaker than it was 10 years ago. In some cases, it may have been stronger 10 years ago. So I really look for that base response of like, oh my God, I physically feel connected to this image. Not between the ears, but it's a heart, soul, gut thing. So that's that's one. And that's what I look for first. And then to your point, like I just found some images where I just had a love the color or i love the composition or the texture i've I've shot some of the old military forts here and there's just this corroded metal uh rusted up anchors and stuff and i just the texture i'm just like god that is just sublime texture i'm gonna print that and so it really is just that's so cool i don't know why i didn't print it 10 years ago or look at it 10 years ago so it is but it all even at those go back to just there's this visceral like wow that just is I can feel a swelling in my chest or in my butterflies in my stomach that tell me there's something there. Um, and that's so what I, I look
2: hear, for. Um, and what's funny I can hear is it in your voice right now. Uh, I mean, I can, I can actually like yeah. watch your, I'm watching his face you know, you guys are listening to this, but you, yeah, you just got, I could see how excited you just got even thinking about those textures, you know, yeah. and, and
1: it's, and it's, and what's funny is I have some images where I look back and I'm like, wow, I, that's a, that is a classic, amazing landscape. And It just goes by. I'm like, you know, I call him my Ansel. Adams. like, oh, that's an Ansel shot. That, I'm like, I was in Yosemite. I was in Yellowstone. Been in the Yellowstone River. The clouds are great. Composition looks good. I'm like, I've seen it. Not me. And then I go along. I'm like, oh my gosh, this okay. knotted up tree bark. I'm like, oh, I got to get that tree bark. So it's, it's if you ask me before I flip through what I would respond to, it's almost never what I actually do respond to. I would tell you, oh, there's these. Uh-huh. I remember being in Death Valley. There's this really cool artist palette thing, and the sun and the moon. I'm like, oh, that's gonna be perfect. And I get there, I'm like, yeah, yeah, gotta
0: go. Great answer. <laughs> that's a great question. So, yeah, I've just realised we've been how long we've we been going for? This is gonna be a great episode because just I've just been sat enjoying listening to you both. Um, so, Dan, now the world that we're living in at the moment, how much of what's going on? And what is to come, is any of it affecting your thought and work process at the moment? Have you made any contingency plans? Have you had to take a slightly different direction to what you do? I I know you teach, so that's one of the things. But has anything come out of this that's made you change something you might do? Are you experimenting with something different? Or, you know, because we've still got months ahead of us, not weeks. So that's a Um, great question. And I can tell you that I... Lori,
1: my life partner uh, and wife, um, we run Silly Dog Studios is the name of our studio up on Whidbey. And we used to live in the core of downtown Seattle in a beautiful house, 1908 house. And we've been downsizing for years. And so she's a writer and an herbalist and creates products. And we you know sell those on the island. And she's got electronic workbooks and author books she's created. And so our, our lives were kind of... Slowly moving to island-based anyway, and so we we spend time on the property, and we walk through the woods, and so that kind of stuff hasn't changed. Emotionally, it's been hard for for both of us that the amount of struggle and pain and and, and things that have happened to the world and the world will never be the same. Um, you know, we'll think about things, we'll respond to things differently, and so part of that 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 tension that just sits there and we see it and we hear it in our friends is just, that's hard. I mean, it's for Lori's an empath. And for me, I've got more empathy than I had years ago. Um, but I, I think that's, that's been a real hard thing. And so we've had to, we were having to process that. And I think everybody's having to process that this is not, it's what I mentioned in a podcast a couple of weeks ago. I, I'm just bent that we use the word social isolation Hmm. because we are social creatures. Even if you're an introvert, you're still a social creature. And what we need is physical isolation, but we don't need to be socially isolated. That's exactly it. And so no. that that isolation is hard. My fr- I'm, a lot of my friends on the island, they're in their 70s and 80s. They're photographers, and like well, we exchange emails, and I'll call them and check on them or whatever. But we used to have coffee every week, like, and we talk photography, and we talk art, and we talk life. And I'm not getting that anymore, and that's that's been really hard. In the actual creative space. I've had an interesting breakthrough that I'll probably I think it'll probably be in a, I think it's in two or three podcasts I'm going to talk about it. But my studio is a, a renovated garage, 580 square feet. I have an analog dark room, my big printers. But I had always set this up as a teaching space, so it was you came to my studio. My workshops are all small, intimate, four or five people, maybe six tops. Usually it's four to five people. We spend three or four days. It's just a free for all, everything in there. When I made the decision about two weeks ago, I'm like. I don't create in my space as efficiently as I think I could. So one of the things that COVID did with me being home every day and really like I can't teach, the workshops aren't going to happen this year probably. I mean, I'm the way our stay-at-home orders are going to fall, probably not going to happen. And I'm not sure I would want to bring six people to my studio for a week and put them at risk. So my mm. entire studio is just being gutted and renovated into my actual ideal working environment for my creativity. So furniture has been removed. Uh, whole walls are being magnetized for print viewing, light structures being changed. Everything's been renovated in an effort to put me in a better creative space. So it's the first time I've put my own creative need above my teaching need, sharing need, other need. And so for me, that's a pretty interesting uh, change, and I'm pretty excited about that. The other, the other piece, I think, from a work standpoint is... I've always said that, oh, if I had more time, I would do X, Y, Z. And I've realized that that's just an absolutely asinine and stupid phrase that I use. Because time is time. It's not like all of a sudden I have more time than I had before. Um, No, it's the same amount same amount amount of time. And I still have the same responsibilities. Anybody who's running their own business, I still got taxes. I still got stuff to do. Like My day's still full. But what I've realized is what I really love is a little bit of Of quiet time, a little bit of meditative time. So I'm trying to cut out time for that. And then some experimentation time because of what I do. I'm like, Oh, what happens if I printed this and I did this and what if I collage that? So just some, some things outside my normal comfort zone. Um, And what I've realized is I need that outlet because that, if I don't, I can easily fall back into being consumed by the negativity of our news media because the news media is negative because that sells ads. They're not trying to make me happy. They're trying to make money.
0: And so <laughs> yeah.
1: if the more things I do to kind of be creative, the more things I try, the more I'm outdoors photographing flowers in the garden in my yard because I'm like Alan. I'm not leaving. I mean, I, we we do our little errands, but I consider my job to keep everybody else around me safe. And so we don't we don't leave. Yeah and uh, and so that that little shift has made me really think about sketching, drawing, reading, uh, just things like that that I probably wouldn't have spent as much time on before. I'm trying to get habit built on now so that when we do come out of this, I've ingrained some of these daily habits of sketching, drawing, reading in an interesting in an interesting way that I think will hopefully survive but yeah
0: yeah using the time to develop good habits rather than create the bad habits the excuses we find is i'm i'm the same it's like now we're a month in lockdown here i'm starting to realize the things i do i don't do and i put off and i'm thinking well i'm working from home all right i'm working nine to five but all i need to do is make better use of the existing time that's there there isn't like you say there isn't extra time it's just me Making better use of, you know, not sitting and watching Tiger King twice. You know, watch it once and then spend those other six hours. Like my commute was was giving me twenty four hours a month in a car, so I've actually gained twenty four hours back. Now, granted, I was getting up at half five in the morning and leaving the house at six. I don't get up at six, but I've still got traveling time. I've still probably got about eighteen, sixteen to eighteen hours a month that I used to spend on my backside in a car. So I'm trying to learn, I'm starting to watch more classes like how to learn to use Premiere Pro. Um, I'm not a very good reader, so I try to make time to read more than I used to, like an extra bit of time. Be tidy. I went through all my old hard drives, I dug out all the pictures of the kids, I've put them in folders, jobs I've been putting off. I actually quite enjoy some of this... this, um, new process that i've had to develop that i think it it's make it uh, for the most part for the people who can can work out how to do it i think it will make us better people because the world's not going to be the same and we can be more productive and we can make the best of the situation that we're in so no i'm 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 gonna call it an end there because that was just a great answer i want you to come back on i will come on anytime
1: you would like i love hanging out with you guys you guys are the best
0: there's there's a sec there's a second there because i still got a ton of stuff (laughs) wanted to talk to you about but i'm going to call it a night here because we've done an hour and a half uh i just want to thank you dan for coming on um it's just an absolute pleasure to talk to you and i think we need to we need to chat outside of the podcast anyway and and just have more like i've been speaking to alan every week now and again it's something i don't normally do so i think what's nice is we've got these we've got the technology to do it and i encourage everybody you know just just look up a friend you haven't spoken to in a while and just find a reason to chat about your photography or design or kids or whatever do that um but i will put all the links to your website and your classes and everything so people can go and look at your work um social media and and that and and definitely the podcast we'll, i'll share a couple of episodes in the show notes and i'll put a link to I, I highly recommend people subscribe to it it's say 15 minutes every monday it's 15 minutes you can you can take time to sit and listen and it really is one of my favorite podcasts whenever people ask me which ones you know if i've got to give a list i always throw it in there oh, thank so you. Thank you for what you do, Dan. It's pl- pleasure to have met you and be a friend. And uh, and thank you to Alan for being our guest co host again. Oh, I'm loving it, all the all all the good parts of it, and none of the actual work. This is <laughs> yeah, none of the editing or social. So sure. so, uh, so we'll say goodbye now. Um, we we'll definitely have you back on. And uh, yeah, just thanks, guys, and stay safe. And uh, we'll see you all soon. Yeah, thanks.
2: Stay safe. Yep.
0: Perfect. Thank you. Right, here we go, hold on to your knickers.